You're listening to a Richwood Church podcast. Tim is the local pastor. Janita is a licensed therapist. They're telling us their story, a difficult story, but one that will result in a lot of hope and, and healing. And so now you're in the hospital. You've undergone a suicide attempt. Tim has got you there. You fought him all the way, but he did what he needed to do. So what happens next? You're you're isolated from your family because they want to see if your family is part of the system problem that you're facing. So you're very isolated. And they allowed me to have my Bible. I stumbled on Psalm 121. And if you've read it, it begins with, um, I look to the hills, where does my help come from? It's the psalmist feeling that you know you're looking out for hope and it talks about it's a psalm that talks about how um, God watches over us and he even watches over us when we sleep he doesn't it says God doesn't sleep or slumber and I couldn't sleep that first night so the idea that God was standing guard over me and wasn't leaving me was pure comfort and I just clung to it and I held on to that and um, so I was in the hospital for a week and when I got out um, I was really blessed that I, I was going, the college we went to was Columbia International University and the staff there was, um, the professors were amazing. And one of them in particular, Steve Bradley, reached out to me. And when I got home, I was listening to my messages and he had left me this message that said, Janita, I, I don't know if you're gonna get this or when you're gonna get this, but I woke up last night, I couldn't sleep, but I have this Psalm on my mind. And he started reading Psalm 121. And I just started weeping because it was like God was reminding me, I haven't left you that you know because at that moment I felt very alone and Steve said I want you to meet my wife and I thought that's the last thing I want to do (laughs) I didn't want to meet or see somebody I don't know (laughs) I didn't even want to see people I knew but he insisted that I meet her because Pat had been through depression and Pat um, came over and was just a breath of fresh air this woman was so loving and she would call me every day and if I wasn't out of bed, then she would come over and get in bed with me and say, Janita, it's, we can do this step by step and we can do it together. And she would just kind of every day model that continual support, just love, unconditional She was love. not trying to fix you. Mm-mm. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Ridgewood Church. My name is Neil Eukel. I'm the Outreach and Discipleship Pastor. We're so glad that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us online as well. So glad to have you with us as we, this morning, wrap up our sermon series that we've titled, God, Do You Care? Where we've been unpacking all these crucial questions about God, faith, and the Bible, and how it relates to our lives. And what I love about Tim and Janita's story is that it shows that God will meet us when we are at our deepest places of need. Janita was sharing about how when she was in the hospital reading Psalm 121, it was God that was meeting with her and showing her that you are not alone. And through reading God's word, it was like God was reaching into those vulnerable places of her heart and showing her that he was there with her. And it's that sort of enduring hope that we desperately need in this life. This life is a hard life. Regardless of, of where we've been, I think we've all experienced varying levels of this. Whether that was through intense grief 
that we've been going through, or just a struggle, a trial, whatever that might be that could bring us to the point where we don't know if we're going to make it. And it's in moments like that where we need a hope that will endure in our lives. And the world is out there telling us that there is a hope that we can find in all of these things that the world tells us will give us enduring hope. Find the perfect job, the perfect spouse, the perfect house on Wyzetta Bay with all the toys that you can imagine. Fill your life with comfort and ease and you will have hope. But all these things will, will go away. I mean, all it takes is a pandemic. You lose your job and all of a sudden those things start to fall like dominoes. And that's where we realize that this world cannot offer us that enduring hope. We need something deeper. We need something more. And that is what we have in a relationship with God. That enduring hope comes to us no other way than through a relationship with God. We have to know God. And this morning, where Tim's and Janita's story and our stories intersect is on this question of how do we access that enduring hope? It comes through knowing God. So we're going to answer the question this morning of how do we know God? And we're going to see that the only way we know God is through a relationship with Him that is by faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see three reasons why that's the case, why we can only know God through a relationship with Jesus that is by faith. We're going to be in Romans chapter 10 this morning, so if you've got a Bible and want to open with me to Romans chapter 10, if you want to use the Pew Bible in front of you, it is on page 946. Romans is right near the end of the Bible. So, Flip almost all the way to the end and you'll find Romans right in there. And we will be in chapter 10 this morning. The first 13 verses is what we're going to go to to answer this question of how do we know God. Verse 1 reads, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now what we need to do here, whenever we just kind of helicopter drop right into the middle of a book of the Bible... Nonetheless, one of the most complicated and in-depth books of the Bible, one of Paul's longest letters that he wrote, when we just drop right into the middle of it like this, we need to ask ourselves, what is happening here? And that question really hits us in the face, because Paul just jumps right into it when he says, brothers. Who are these brothers that he's talking about? Well, these brothers and sisters are the believers in Jesus who live in Rome, Paul has written this lengthy letter to them to describe what he is so passionate about. So the brothers refers to the believers in Jesus who live in Rome. Now, them and they in verse 1, this is important that we understand this, this refers to the Jewish people. And Paul himself is Jewish. So Paul is deeply concerned with the salvation of his Jewish brothers and sisters. He is so concerned that he says it's his heart's desire and prayer that they would be saved. So this is a big deal to Paul. And we know that because he has told us so in, in Romans chapter 9, just one chapter earlier, in verses 2 through 3, 
which he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And right at the beginning of verse 4, he spells it out clearly when he says, they are Israelites. Unceasing anguish in his heart. Great sorrow over the lostness of his people. I mean, when I read stuff like that, I have to look myself in the mirror and say, do I care that much about the lost who live around me? Do I care that much? And maybe you can ask the question along with me. Do we care that much? That we see people each and every day when we go to work, when we're at the playground with our kids, when our kids go to school and they interact with their classmates, their teachers, the principals at their school. Do we care that much that apart from the relationship with Jesus, all these people will go through their life checking all the wrong boxes that tell them they're successful, that they're living a good life, and that they have a hope that will endure. And they will spend eternity apart from God in hell. That's a grave reality that confronts us every single day when we see people in this world. But do we care? Because I got to tell you, when I feel that pull in my heart, when God starts tugging on my heart, that I should walk up to someone, maybe it's my neighbor, introduce myself and start up a conversation with the intent that maybe someday I can share the gospel with them. Or maybe it's right now and God is saying, you should talk to that person and share Jesus with them. Whenever God starts to tug on my heart that way, what normally meets that voice of compassion that comes from God is this other voice in me that says, don't do it. That would be stupid. How insane is that to walk up to someone you don't know and share Jesus with them? They're going to think you're some religious freak. They're going to think you're weird. And you're going to lose your reputation with them. You see, that voice of compassion so often in my heart, and maybe in yours as well, is met with this heart of selfishness. This voice that is really just saying, me, be concerned with me. Because it's all about me and my comfort. I want people to think well of me, and therefore I'm going to play it safe. I'm not going to share with them. I'm not going to start up that conversation. And that's the tension that we live in every time God starts to tug on our hearts in that way. So what do we do? What do we do to grow that heart of compassion, that voice of compassion that tells us to strike up that conversation and diminish the voice that is rooted in selfishness? Well, number one, I think we need to pray. We need to pray earnestly. Paul says it's his heart's desire and his earnest prayer that the Jewish people would be saved. We need to pray earnestly for those around us. We need to pray for those in our families, our friends, everybody around us, that they would come to know Jesus and that God would provide the opportunities for us to step towards them and share 
Jesus, to strike up that conversation, to introduce ourselves and not play it safe. And the second thing that we need to do is we just need to take that little step towards them. It's as simple as introducing yourself, asking them some questions about who they are. You start to build that relationship. It happened to me just yesterday. My wife and I just moved into our house in Chanhassen. My neighbor was outside. I was doing something to take care of his yard. I just walked over to him and started up a conversation with him. And it's that easy to start to break that ice, to make that connection. But we, I think so many things in this world just work against that. We don't want to take that step. And that's where we need to start praying that God would grow that voice of compassion and diminish that voice of selfishness so that we can take those steps toward them. So Paul is so concerned with the salvation of his Jewish brothers and sisters. And now, in these next few verses, he's going to pull back the curtain a little bit even more and share with us just what it is that is keeping them from putting their faith in Jesus as their Messiah. He says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There, and there we see that the problem for the Jewish people is not apathy. It's not that they just don't care or that they're disinterested. In fact, they have a great zeal for God. They have a passion for God. But Paul says it's not based on knowledge. What does that mean? That's a little bit of a clunky way of, of translating that, but it basically means the Jewish people are so gung-ho and passionate about God, but the way they are pursuing him is not rooted in truth. And that's a big problem. Paul wants to clear that up for them and for us this morning as well, because the way that we pursue God should not be based on trying to earn our own righteousness like the Jewish people were doing, but it should be on trying to allow God to be that righteousness for us. So what were the Jewish people so zealous about in their relationship with God? God had given them the law. God had given them 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And this 613 commandments, the whole Old Testament law, was not meant so that they could fulfill the whole law. I mean, if you wanted someone to be able to do something, you wouldn't give them 613 checklist items, would you? I mean, imagine you go to work tomorrow and your boss hands you a list of, hey, here's 613 things I need done. You're going to be like, whoa. That is a little bit of the intention of the law. Because it's not meant to say we can earn our way to God on our own like the Jewish people were thinking. It's meant to say we have a deep need for God because we could never fulfill that law completely. The law was not meant to be something that could allow us to achieve our own righteousness. It was meant to show us that we need God to be our righteousness for us. 
Now, we've talked a lot about righteousness, haven't we, already? I mean, we've kind of, and Paul really does beat that word into us in Romans. He uses the word uh, righteousness 34 times alone in the book of Romans. That's about 35% of the entire usage of that word in the New Testament. So to say righteousness is a big deal to Paul in this letter is a little bit of an understatement. But it's not a word that we use, and it's not a word that we understand. I mean, in fact, I don't think I've hardly ever used the word righteousness outside of a context like this. Maybe you're different, you're out there talking about righteousness every single day, but not me. So what does righteousness mean, and why is Paul so fired up about it? Well, righteousness really just means perfection in a moral sense. It means that you have a goodness, a moral goodness about you. And that is something that we cannot achieve on our own. Because when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, we inherited something called original sin. And we have a sin nature in us that inevitably leads us into sin. We could never be perfect on our own because of that nature that we have inherited. Now, what does that really look like? Well, picture this. Picture a glass beaker that has a little bit of sand at the bottom. It's a beaker that's about this tall. It's got about an inch of sand at the bottom. The rest is filled with water. It's a little bit like uh, the sand at the bottom is our sin nature. And the rest of our lives is clear water. But as soon as life gets unsettled and that beaker gets shaken up, that sin nature seeps into the water. And the water gets clouded. We start treating people differently when we are under stress. We get angry. We get more easily frustrated. We look for escapes from that stress that can lead us into sin. That's what happens when our lives get shaken up. That sin nature starts to seep into the water of our lives. And we all experience that. It's inevitable from birth we will sin, and therefore we will not be perfect before God. But righteousness is that moral perfection that we need, and it has to come from God. And that's our first reason why we can only know God through a relationship that is by faith in Jesus. And that's because Jesus gives us the righteousness we need for a relationship with God. Jesus got the cross, we get grace, unending grace from God because of Jesus' sacrifice, because he's the only one that fulfilled all 613 of those commandments. And in his perfection, he went to the cross on our behalf, and he gave his life for us. He gets the cross, we get his righteousness. That's what it means to have righteousness, to have God's righteousness. You see, when Jesus came, he changed the way we relate to the law. That's why Paul says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes in verse 4. There is a massive shift that has happened for all people, let alone the Jewish people. God has sent his son to become our righteousness. And Paul's going to continue to pull back that curtain a little bit more in this next section as he continues to talk about this law. In verse 5, we pick up, he says, 
For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. You see that righteousness that is based on the law? That is the righteousness that would come from perfectly fulfilling the law. And as we just said, there's only one person that's perfectly fulfilled it, and that's Jesus. So that righteousness is not, of, is not, is not meant to be our righteousness. But I think the Jewish people were assuming that that was the way they needed to come to know God, was through perfectly fulfilling the law. And what got mixed into all of that was this idea of, of self-sufficiency, that we needed to be self-sufficient in our own good works to know God. And that's a lie straight from hell. But that's what the Jewish people were thinking and they weren't just thinking, I need to fulfill these 613 commandments. It's like that wasn't good enough because in Paul's day, as well as in Jesus' day, there were essentially these two schools of Jewish thought, if you will. These, these two groups of rabbis that would debate about those 613 commandments. And they would put all these man-made rules around those 613 commandments. So they would make it even harder. They would place more barriers between people and God. I mean, they would argue about how many steps can we take on the Sabbath before it becomes sin? How many steps can we take before it becomes work? And Jesus pushed back on that more than almost anything in his lifetime. Because they were putting undue barriers in the way of people coming to a relationship with God. That's the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees in the New Testament. Because Jesus preached a different message. He said, this is not about you fulfilling the law perfectly. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Not through the law. Not through this idea of self-sufficiency. And you might be saying to yourself, well, why couldn't they get that? Why couldn't they understand that, of course, they couldn't earn their way to a relationship with God? And I think... So often in our lives, we also have this idea of self-sufficiency, don't we? We have this idea that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, so to speak. That's an old saying, but I still hear it sometimes in the U.S. Is, that, is this idea that we can be sufficient on our own for whatever life throws at us. That we just kind of have to knuckle down and bear it. We can do it all ourselves. Whatever idea you have, you can go out and do it on your own fruition, on your own efforts. And, and if we let that seep into our relationship with God that we so often do, then we're missing the truth of the gospel. But we have this idea of self-sufficiency that prevents us from really engaging God the way that we are intended to. And if this idea of righteousness is a little bit foreign to you, if this idea of, of coming to God not through good works is a little bit foreign to you, 
let me try to paint this picture of what this was like. And this will help give us an idea of what these Jewish people were thinking as well. Picture yourself in line at your favorite drive through restaurant. Uh, you're getting your chicken strip basket at Chick-fil-A. You're getting your iced latte at Caribou or Starbucks or one of those more local places that people like to go to that I maybe have not uh, found a lot of those yet in this area since I'm still new here. You guys got to point them out to me. But you're in line at one of those places, and you go through. You order your chicken strip meal. You order your latte. You get to the window, and you hand your credit card out the window. And that person says to you, the person in front of you just paid for your meal. Here it is. It's free to you. What's your initial response when that happens? You're, you feel like a little bit foolish. You're standing with a credit card out your window, and it's like, oh, this is not needed anymore. And you feel a little bit shocked that someone would do that for you. It kind of makes your day initially, doesn't it? You're like, wow, someone gave me this for free. That's awesome. But maybe as you drive away with your free drink or your free meal, you start to think, well, why would they do something like that for me? What did I do to deserve that? I haven't done anything. In fact, what I really needed to do, I needed to pay for the person behind me. Man, I didn't pay it forward. I messed up. And that is that idea of self-sufficiency working itself out in our hearts and in our lives. Because we can't easily accept a free gift. We always think, what are the strings attached? And why would someone do that? That's a little bit of what the Jewish people were thinking about Jesus when it comes to the law. See, for generations they had been taught that this was the way they needed to know God. They were thinking that they needed to be self-sufficient in order to have a relationship with God. And I think that we also can fall into that bucket sometimes too. We need to allow God to come into our hearts so that we can be joyful as we give to others, not out of obligation. That spirit of obligation will kill the joy that you are intended to have in giving to others. We need to accept the free gift of grace that God has given us in Jesus so that we can then go and love other people and spread that good news. And this is the second reason why we can only have a relationship with God, why we can only know God through faith in Jesus, is that we were not meant to be perfect on our own. This idea that we needed to be self-sufficient, that we needed to be perfect, that's not what we were meant for. We were meant for a relationship with God that is by faith in Jesus Christ. And that gives us the grace and the righteousness that we need in order to do what God has called us to do. And Paul's going to finish up this section here uh, in verse 9 through 13 when he says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart... One believes and is justified, 
and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. I love how Paul makes it so simple. He says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. It says, he says, for with the heart one believes and is justified. You see, that's where faith comes into this whole equation, if you will. We talk about, a lot about faith. What is faith, really? Well, it's a little bit like you have, an, like picture an appliance. Picture a, a toaster, a blender, a skill saw, a table saw, whatever you want to think of. That appliance needs to be connected to a power source in order to do what it's intended to do, does it not? Whether it's battery powered or whether it needs to be plugged into a wall. But faith is like plugging in an appliance. You see, if we, through faith, connect with God through a relationship in Jesus, it's like we have just plugged ourselves into that stream of grace and righteousness that comes from God to us through faith in Jesus. So faith is simply the action of plugging ourselves into God. And that's only available through faith in Jesus. And when we do that, when we put our faith in Jesus, God's mercy and God's grace and righteousness flow through that current to us so that we can do what we were intended to do, so that we can have a relationship with God and spend eternity with him in heaven. That is the good news that Jesus made possible, that Jesus assured for us. And if you have not put your faith in Jesus, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a few moments at the end of our service this morning. I encourage you uh, to come now. Don't delay, but come to Jesus now. Because he has a great plan and a great life for you. He wants you to live for all the right things. And he will change your life for the better. I promise. It won't always be easy. I don't want to paint that picture. But Jesus has a life of significance and purpose for you that you could never imagine apart from him. But it doesn't stop at just believing, which is why I think Paul said, it's with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. You see, faith in Jesus doesn't stop there, but it produces in us the right response. It produces in us those good works that we can do joyfully, not out of obligation, but with joy in our hearts because of the gift we have received. You see that that believing, that faith that we have requires an outward action, a confession of faith with the mouth. So it is faith initially that produces those good works. See, that's how it works. When God calls us to himself, his calling produces that faith in us. It produces that response in us so that we plug ourselves in to that connection with God through faith in Jesus. 
And the faith itself is what produces that current of grace that we need to do what God has called us to do. And so, I want to invite you to an opportunity to take a step of faith and be baptized. Because Jesus talks a lot about, uh, or he, he talks about baptism as an outward response of the inward reality that we are followers of Jesus. He says in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism is an initial or a, a, a response of obedience to the calling that God has on our lives. That's why we're so passionate about, about baptism here. We believe that it is a response that comes from faith in Jesus. That through baptism, we align ourselves with him. Because what baptism is, is it's a, it's a great picture of our life. Because when we go down into the water... We go to a place where you can't live. You can't live underwater. I mean, don't even try. So when we go under the water, we can no longer live. That is like our life before we know Jesus. We're caught in sin. We're trapped in our transgressions, and we don't have the righteousness required for a relationship with God. But when we come out of the water, that is the symbol that we have been raised to a newness of life with Jesus, that he has taken us from death into life, and now we are free free from sin, and we have all the power we need to live for him. That is what makes baptism so powerful. And if you have put your faith in Jesus at some point in your life and have not been baptized as a believer, we want to encourage you to take that step of faith. We want to give you that opportunity. And maybe you're on the fence about baptism. Maybe it's something where you were baptized uh, as an infant in a different church. I want to tell you that that's my story as well. And if you're wrestling with baptism, you're in good company here. Because that is my story as well. And we've got a little video to show you just a bit of, uh, of, of my testimony here uh, when it comes to baptism. So we're going to play that video for you. I was raised in the church and brought up by my parents to know Jesus and to do all the things that Christian kids do. I was baptized by a priest as a baby and just kind of went through all of the First Communion and First Confession. And my parents really did all that they could to try to raise me to become a believer. But I didn't really come to have a relationship with Jesus until my friends invited me to a church camp. And I remember understanding that Jesus had died for my sins and that he wanted me to follow him and I just remember feeling this really warm almost like a burning sensation in my chest I knew it was God reaching out to me showing me like hey I'm real I'm not just someone that people talk about the topic of baptism didn't really come up for me until I went to college I had professors and mentors just kind of talk to me about it and what baptism really meant, and uh, how Jesus, uh, Jesus' last words to, to his disciples were, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I think what Jesus says there is that as we become a believer, baptism is part of becoming a disciple, and, it, and it's when you come to faith in Christ that baptism marks you as a believer. And 
it's a sign that God has come into your life and regenerated you and made you a new person. The first Sunday that my wife and I attended Mission Hills in 2014, they started talking about baptism and how they were doing this big outdoor baptism event and there were hundreds of people that were going to be baptized. And I just knew at that point that God was calling me to take the step now. A couple weeks later I got baptized at the outdoor baptism service and definitely felt like I was being obedient to what God was calling me to do. So that's my story of when I was baptized about six years ago at our church in Colorado. And we've got an opportunity coming up on August 15th for you to be baptized at our outdoor baptism service, which will be down in Excelsior, right on Lake Minnetonka. We'll be having our outdoor service that day, and it's a great opportunity for you to take the step and be baptized on August 15th. If you can't wait until August 15th and you're like, God is moving me to do this sooner, then we could baptize you as soon as this week. If that's something you want to do, then just come talk to me or talk to someone at the hub after the service. We would love to give you that opportunity because baptism is that first action. After our faith connects us with Jesus' saving and justifying power, baptism is that step that we can take. Now, let's, uh, let's close in prayer this morning. Uh, let's pray together and then we'll continue in worship. Father, we come before you this morning and we give you thanks that you have called us to yourself, that you have given us a relationship with you through Jesus, that he has made the way so that we can freely come to him. No strings attached, God. And if you have not given your life to Jesus and you want to this morning, you can just pray this, pray this prayer along with me. Father, I recognize that I have sinned against you and I don't have any righteousness on my own, Father. But I know that you have given Jesus, that he has paid the price for all of my sin, Father, and I want him in my heart. I need Jesus in my life. So Jesus, come into my heart and make your home with me. I turn from my sin, I repent, and I believe in you, and I want to live my life for you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you pray that prayer for the first time this morning, we want to celebrate with you. So come and talk to me, talk to Walt at the hub after the service. You can even fill out those connect cards in the backs, in the back, uh, in the pew backs in front of you. Check that box that says, I said yes to Jesus, so that we can follow up with you. Those are some ways that you can let us know that you've made that decision this morning, because we would love to hear your story and give you some next steps. Let's continue in worship this morning. Thank you for joining us on the Ridgewood Church Podcast. For more faith-based resources or information about Ridgewood Church, visit us at myrwc.org.